Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu hosting the Nazi anti-Semitic friendly Elon Musk, whose social media platform is awash with white nationalist hate and extremism that is not just tolerated, but is encouraged by Musk in the name of free speech. Joining us is Dr. Guy Ziv, a professor at the Department of Foreign Policy at American University's School of International Service and associate director of the Meltzer Schwartzberg Center of Israel Studies, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israel relations and Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. He has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking and is the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. He has a forthcoming book out soon, Netanyahu versus the Generals, The Battle for Israel's Future, and we will discuss tensions inside Netanyahu's cabinet and between the Prime Minister and the IDF leadership. Then we'll examine how Hunter Biden is calling the bluff of the absurd House Republican kangaroo court led by the barking fool James Comer by agreeing to testify in public, which Comer can't and won't agree to. Joining us is Jacob Halbrun, the editor of The National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a columnist at The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, the Rise of the Neocons, and his latest book available at Amazon, America Last, The Right's Century-Long Romance with Foreign Dictators. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times, a senior editor at the New Republic, and we will discuss his article, At the National Interest, Hunter Biden's Revenge, He Could Become the Hero That Saves Joe Biden. Then finally, we'll look into the poisoning of the wife of the head of Ukraine's military intelligence and discuss the extent to which Russia has penetrated the leadership circle for assassination and speak with Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. We'll discuss his article at the Kiev Post, Why Ukraine Can and Will Win, and another at The Hill, Jake Sullivan's new essay reveals a Biden administration in denial about Ukraine. Today is Giving Tuesday, and we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free, and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now, Dr. Guy Ziv, who's a professor in the Department of Foreign Policy at American University School of International Service and an associate director of the Meltzer Schwartzberg Center for Israel Studies, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israel relations, the Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, and he worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, and is the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres and Foreign Policy Change in Israel, and his forthcoming book out soon is Netanyahu versus the Generals, The Battle for Israel's Future. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Guy Ziv. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Guy. And what did you make of Monday's visit by Elon Musk, escorted by Prime Minister Netanyahu? They uh, toured the kibbutz that Hamas militants attacked on October the 7th. And, you know, of course, prior to this, uh, there's been a lot of criticism of, of Elon Musk for 
hosting Nazis and anti-Semitic content on on X, his uh, formerly Twitter platform that he owns personally, and it's it, it to some people it looks like uh, reputation washing. You walk, you know, wandering around with the Israeli Prime Minister after after hosting Nazis and anti-Semites. Yeah, well, I think uh, you got to look at it from a domestic political angle because Netanyahu is very unpopular these days, and uh, he can use all the support he can get. And was uh, was hoping that this visit would uh, shore up some support, um, would kind of take away from some of the uh, the more uh, disheartening news and uh, developments, and uh, and of course the public discontent with his leadership and with having uh, really uh, uh, kind of been responsible for presiding over the largest terrorist attack in the country's history. Well, just to point out what Musk recently said, and it was, by the way, as recent as the 15th of November on a post on X from an anti-Semite saying the Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectic hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them, referring to the Great Replacement Theory. You remember, of course, at Charlottesville, the Nazis with their tiki torches were chanting, the Jews will not replace us, and... Musk responded on X with, you have said the actual truth. So he, there's nothing. That's pretty unequivocal, isn't it? Yes. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, uh, I, I don't really take Elon Musk's uh, support uh, all that seriously. I think that Elon Musk himself is in Israel in part to uh, undo the damage that he's already done. Uh, with the American Jewish community and uh, the, and world Jewry uh, in general, so to me this is just a little distraction um, that I don't uh, read too much into. Well, let's talk about. I mean, by the way, Musk during the at the recent UN General Assembly meeting of all the world leaders, he hung out with Erdogan, Turkey, who's. Uh, <laughs> Who's not exactly a uh, who's also had his had his uh, said some outrageous stuff, uh, particularly about uh, Israel. But nevertheless, um, let's talk about Netanyahu. Yeah, there's a, I just want to just to jump in here for a second. This we're, we're seeing an alliance uh, amongst populist nationalist leaders with a strong authoritarian streak. So if you take a look at the sort of people that uh, Musk gets along with, that Trump got along with, that Bibi Netanyahu gets along with. Um, it's it's the, it's the kind of people, the kind of leaders who are who've moved away from liberal democracy and who kind of implemented a more populist and illiberal uh, approach in their own countries. So what's going on with Netanyahu? I mean, he's being openly contradicted by the IDF leaders. I mean, he recently said, Netanyahu, that Israel would occupy Gaza indefinitely. And the military immediately said, no way. So what's going on in these cabinet meetings? I mean, the, the meeting to get the approval for the, the deal that's just been going down and been extended a couple of days of releasing hostages for, with a pause in the war itself, it seems that uh, that took forever. And I imagine the far right that members of the cabinet like Ben Gvir and, and Schmertrich have, have furiously opposed doing anything. So what's your sense of what's going on inside here? Well, you have an unpopular leader uh, who's conducting a war with uh, the military who clearly don't like him. That's right. Uh, so there are a couple things going on here. One is that there doesn't seem to be any real strategy, uh, certainly not a post-Hamas strategy, but even the goal of Eliminating uh, Hamas or crippling Hamas is uh, a very tall order, especially when you factor in the other goal of this war, which is to free the hostages. So uh, Netanyahu is facing only bad options, uh, and, and there are some options that are worse than others. But he's also looking at the post-war political situation for him because he realizes how unpopular he is. And he has been setting up the security establishment um, uh, to make sure that they are receiving, that they will be receiving the bulk of the blame um, once uh, 
once the dust settles and there is going to be kind of a, a probably an investigation, uh, he wants to make it into what went wrong on October. Uh, so he wants to make sure that he is not to blame and has pinned the blame on the generals and on the heads of the uh, intelligence, uh, uh, the chiefs of uh, intelligence agencies. So that's what I think, that's where I think he's at. Um, and at the same time, he's got his coalition to maintain. So he does, he cannot afford to lose these far right extremist members of his cabinet because then his coalition falls apart. So that's, that's his balancing act, which is a tough one. But this emergency government he has with the opposition joining in with him, that has precedence at the moment, doesn't it? What's, what's the, the sort of legal status of that? In other words, can, can the, the far right pull the rug from under Netanyahu or does the yes. wartime uh, cabinet get can, precedence? They, they, yeah, so they can. They, anyone, anyone can leave the coalition at any time. Uh, that includes the far right uh, members of the coalition. I don't think they're incentivized to leave the coalition, though, because polls show that they would not fare as well. And uh, Benny Gantz, who is uh, the most popular leader in Israel these days, has indicated that for now he's still going to stay in this emergency coalition government. But he, too, can leave uh, the coalition at any time. And in fact, some of his some of the members of his party have been urging him to do so. Well, this is no way to run a railroad, let alone a war. That's right. Uh, but in the meantime, there he can take solace in uh, limited achievements, which include, of course, the release of um, so many hostages so far. And of course, the majority are still in Gaza. But having the hostages return is a temporary respite, I think, for everyone, for all the parties involved. But that, that came from pressure from the families and from the Israeli public against pressure, clearly, from the far-right people like Smirch and Ben Gvir, who, who didn't want to pause in the war, right? That's correct. They, they wanted uh, the government to pursue the one, and, and as far as they're concerned, the only important goal, which was to eliminate Hamas, and just uh, releasing the hostages... Uh, which involves a prisoner exchange and a pause, humanitarian pause or a temporary ceasefire in this war is not something that the far right is comfortable with, but they're outnumbered and there's a near consensus in Israeli society that releasing the hostages is a high priority, a top priority, even if that means that it comes at the expense of uh, military um, achievements. But the minute that the deal is over, then... Netanyahu said, said we're going to go back and pound Gaza and continue the effort to eliminate Hamas, if that's even possible. So yeah. will Ben Gvir and company get their way in a few days' time? It's not clear if they're, going to, if they're really the ones that are calling the shots here when it comes to this sort of thing. There's, as, as you mentioned, there is tremendous pressure from the Israeli public to get those hostages back. And I think that that's not something that Netanyahu can ignore. Um, I, and I think we're, you know, we've already seen an extension of the temporary ceasefire, and this may drag itself out. It's in Hamas's interest as well, of course, especially in Hamas's interest, to drag this out as long as possible. It's torture for the families. It's torture for society to have to contend with this and not know if uh, a loved one is dead or alive and, and the loved one is going to be on the next uh, trip back to Israel. But, but I think that this, is, this has become a, a high top priority for most Israelis. But Guy, as far as I know, the, maybe the IDF knows what, who's holding these hostages. But I've talked to a few analysts, former CIA people and others who, who, who know a lot about Hamas, it's not even clear who's holding these hostages, whether it's Hamas or the Islamic Jihad or these criminal gangs, because, you know, the, the, the Hamas works with these criminal gangs in the, in the Sinai who, who smuggle arms in from Iran, and these criminal gangs, of course, are in the hostage-taking business as well. So does anybody really know who's holding these hostages? I think Hamas knows more than they claim to know. 
they have uh, been lying left and right on a number of items, including on this issue of the hostages. For example, one of the girls who was released uh, the other day mentioned that uh, she had been with her mom uh, up until uh, a couple days before this girl's release. And Hamas had claimed all along that they had no knowledge of, of her mom's whereabouts. So I think Hamas knows more than they claim they do. They uh, coordinate with Islamic Jihad, so they probably know where the Islamic Jihad is holding uh, their hostages. And it, it's, it is possible that there are some hostages that are being held by cells, uh, by other kind of random uh, standalone uh, terrorists that are not necessarily in coordination with Hamas. But one of the potential benefits of this humanitarian pause and temporary ceasefire is to enable Hamas to locate uh, those people who they claim they don't know uh, where they are. So I think that that excuse is, is really just an excuse, but not, uh, not something I take all too seriously. But it's highly unlikely that Hamas is going to uh, release the Israeli military prisoners they have, many of whom are women. Yeah, I don't think uh, those are going to be the first ones that they're going to release. And I also uh, highly doubt they're going to release everyone, um, especially when Netanyahu has made it clear that he has ordered the Mossad to assassinate all of the Hamas leaders. Hamas leaders are aware that um, that they may want to keep some of the hostages uh, to safeguard uh, their own position. So uh, I, I hope I'm wrong there, but it's it's highly unlikely that all the hostages are going to be released and certainly not the soldiers. So, in other words, he, Netanyahu's ordered the Mossad to go and kill these leaders like the ones in Qatar that are working with the Qataris to negotiate the prisoners' release of, uh, of the Israeli hostages. But he may, have, he may have made this declaration for domestic political purposes rather than an order that is likely to be carried out in another country. So it's... Um, it's far from clear that uh, anyone's going to be assassinating Hamas leaders in Qatar or Turkey or wherever they are. So what's happening then on the northern front? What do you think is restraining Hezbollah from entering the war? Because if, if after this hostage exchange is over and Israel comes back with a vengeance and really starts to pound what's left of Gaza and push the remaining Gazans further down into the south on the Egyptian border into a smaller and smaller enclave. They've, they, at some point, they've said that, they, that they, they're going to enter the war. If there's too much suffering in Gaza, well, that's pretty much in the cards, isn't it? It's in the cards, but I think that there are two factors uh, that are uh, preventing so far, that have prevented Hezbollah from entering this war. One is the fact that President Biden sent over uh, carrier groups, uh, many uh, U.S. fighter jets that are serving as a sort of deterrence for Hezbollah to not get involved. And the other reason is, uh, is Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah himself, who um, has been said to really not want to enter this war. Um, uh, apparently, he uh, made a big mistake and, and concluded he made a big mistake in 2006 when Israel and Hezbollah engaged in a kind of inconclusive war. And I think he's much more cautious uh, than people realize. So uh, he is getting pressure, though, from many members of Hezbollah and from the uh, uh, Palestinian supporters who would like him to get involved to say that the numbers of Palestinian casualties justify and even necessitate Hezbollah's involvement. But opening up a, another front in this war would be uh, a big gamble for Hezbollah and certainly uh, not be helpful to Israel and to the U.S. efforts to kind of stabilize the situation. So just in closing here, Guy, this is obviously hurting Biden, particularly with the young votes that he needs in his coalition, uh, given that even, even in some polls, Trump is ahead in the 2024 election. What's your sense of how long this thing's going to go on, how much political damage Biden's going to get? And also, I mean, obviously, as we've established, Netanyahu's, again, the kind of Houdini 
fighting for his political life. He's he's like Trump. His personal fortunes are more important than the fate of the nation, right? Yeah, there are some similarities. There are also some differences. I think Netanyahu is also more clever than uh, than Trump, and uh, the polls certainly don't look good for Biden. But you know, the election is a year away, and uh, I think a lot can change between now and then. I don't know how long this war is going to last. Nobody knows how long this war is going to last. Um, the defense minister in Israel, Yoav Golan, has said it will last at least a few more months, but. Uh, it's, it's really unclear. And uh, as I said earlier, it's uh, nor is it clear what will happen after after the war. Um, whenever that war is declared over, what is Gaza going to look like? And what's the West Bank going to look like as well? The West Bank right now is a tinderbox. The tensions have not been so high. In fact, if there's going to be any new fronts in this war, it would be more likely to happen in the West Bank than in Lebanon. Well, it's a pretty grim picture, but um, I thank you for I thank you for joining us here today, uh, Dr. Geisel. Sure, hope I can be back under under better circumstances. Indeed, and again, I've been speaking with Dr. Guy Ziv, who's a professor in the Department of Foreign Policy at American University School of International Service and Associate Director of the Meltzer Schwartzberg Center for Israel Studies, where he teaches courses on U.S.-Israel relations and Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. He has worked in the United States Department of State on Capitol Hill and for leading nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. And he's the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Perry and foreign policy change in Israel. And his forthcoming book out soon is Netanyahu versus the Generals, The Battle for Israel's Future. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining how Hunter Biden is calling the bluff of the absurd House Republican kangaroo court led by the barking fool James Comer. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jacob Halbrun, who is the editor of The National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for The Los Angeles Times, a senior editor at The New Republic, and he has an article at The National Interest, Hunter Biden's Revenge, he could become the hero that saves Joe Biden. And his latest book available at Amazon now is America Last, the Right's Century-Long Romance with Foreign Dictators. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Halbrun. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And it looks like Hunter Biden, through his lawyer, Abby Lowell, is trying to turn the tables on this cretin, this absolutely moronic guy that is the chair of the House uh, Oversight and Accountability Committee, uh, Coma, who's one of a whole crop of, of really stupid people that have, uh, that many of whom Trump has brought into politics like uh, Tommy Tuberville in the Senate. Um, and he keeps promising uh, the smoking gun and he never delivers. Uh, so they called his bluff, and, and Abby Lowell wrote to Coma saying, Mr. Chairman, we take you up on your offer. Accordingly, our client will get right to it by agreeing to answer any pertinent and relevant question you or your colleagues might have. But rather than subscribing to your cloaked, one-sided process, he will appear at a public oversight and accountability committee hearing. A public proceeding would prevent selective leaks, manipulated transcripts, doctored exhibits, and one-sided press statements, all of which has been the M.O. of Comus. So what's the next step, uh, Jacob? I think that uh, Hunter Biden and is getting good legal advice now. And it was extremely shrewd of him to agree to testify because this is the last thing that Comar 
and his comrades ever expected. Biden needs to go on the offense when he appears before the House Oversight Committee and make it clear that this is a witch hunt. I even advocated that he pursue a somewhat Trumpian offensive and put his persecutors on the defensive and note that they have not they have not produced a scintilla of evidence that he has engaged in any kind of financial chicanery or linking his father to what they call, quote, an abuse of power. So I think this plays perfectly into Hunter Biden's hands. But the committee's already subpoenaed Hunter Biden to appear on December the 13th, and they've also subpoenaed Biden's brother, James Biden, to appear for an interview on uh, December the 6th. So if he doesn't show, will he be in contempt of Congress? Yes. We know from the Trump administration that you can, in fact, sometimes successfully defy a subpoena from the Congress. And I expect that they were reckoning that Hunter Biden would pursue this strategy of arguing that his father was president and that he couldn't reveal anything that might impinge upon the powers of the executive branch. As you put it correctly, I think he, he's called their bluff, or if you wish, turn the tables on the Republicans. Hunter Biden has been suppressed by the White House until now, by Joe Biden's advisors. The policy that they have pursued is to try and avoid any publicity about Hunter Biden. That has ceded the field to his Republican tormentors and allowed them to depict Joe Biden is heading a crime family in, attempt, in an attempt to whitewash and relativize Trump's manifest and manifold crimes. This cannot be allowed to go on. Hunter Biden must go on the offensive. The best defense is a good offense in this case. But Comer has said, quote, Hunter Biden is trying to play by his own rules instead of following the rules required of everyone else. That won't stand with House Republicans. Now, in response, Jamie Raskin, who's the committee's top Democrat, has said, let me get this straight. After wailing and moaning for 10 months about Hunter Biden and alluding to some vast unproven family conspiracy, after sending Hunter Biden a subpoena to appear and testify... Chairman Comer and the Oversight Republicans now reject this offer to appear before the full committee and the eyes of the world and to answer any questions that they pose. So that's <laughs> that sums it up, no doubt. But again, what's what happens then if Comer, whose bluff has been called, then insists that you got to follow our rules and then they subpoena They've already subpoenaed, and then they try to issue a contempt citation uh, against Hunter Biden. He would then argue that, yeah, I'll show up, but only in public. And and will that neutralize Comer? I think it does, because, look, this is, in, in a sense, a hall of mirrors. It's not that Comer is engaged in some impartial investigation in which he's trying to ferret out the truth. He's already revealed his conclusions in this long, lengthy document that his committee already released, claiming an abuse of power by Joe Biden. They're not trying to find out the facts. They're trying to demonize him and pillory him. And they have not, but they haven't produced, as you said, not a smoking gun, not even a whiff of anything. And if these fools are so foolish as to turn down Biden's willingness to testify publicly, that just redounds to Hunter Biden's benefit. It's exactly as Raskin put it. How can they fear the limelight when they've been screaming for months that Hunter Biden is trying to avoid a public accounting of his activities? Well, it's not as if Hunter Biden has a great case. I mean, it's always sort of been a little unseemly, hasn't it been, you know, to to be the son of the vice president and making deals with the shady people in uh, Ukraine, which is which was just, uh, you know, 
awash with corruption and all kinds of bottom-feeding American buccaneers were over there trying to get it, make a quick buck. It's not to mention the another fool, <laughs> Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, getting involved with some really shady people as well, both of whom are actually uh, now testifying against Rudy for the bogus documents that they produced the, that ended up causing the first impeachment of Trump. So let's talk a little bit, uh, Jacob, about about what the case he would be defending uh, before the committee, assuming that the, it it becomes a public hearing. The case against Hunter Biden in this in this instance is almost ancillary to what there to what actually occurred, because Hunter Biden, yes, no one is going to defend what he did, which was murky, whether it crossed the line into illegality. Is, has not been proven, either in the case of the sweeping claims made that he earned tens or hundreds of millions from China, that he was engaged in widespread corruption in Ukraine. My own view is that Hunter Biden was in over his head. And if Joe Biden is guilty of anything, it's of not restraining his son. But the Republicans are not interested in hunter biden per se the mission is to is to crucify him to show that joe biden was acting in cahoots with hunter biden in ukraine and that the real criminal was not donald trump for his activities in trying to pressure zelensky and engaging in business activities in russia but instead, Joe Biden is a criminal mastermind who is operating, who's using his son as a pawn. Now, if you have a penchant for wild conspiracy theories, then you'll believe this. But again, the Republicans have not managed to produce any evidence showing that either Joe Biden or Hunter Biden was engaged in anything even resembling criminality. But what about James Biden? Is he going to show up on the, on a week from now, a little over a week from now, on on uh, December the sixth? I, you know, I can't answer that. Only he could. I hope he does. And but they'll be I behind closed doors, and they can manipulate the transcripts and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you think he will show up? And but according I, I, to I, I Comer's rules, I don't know. But, you know, the thing is that Comer's own incompetence periodically redounds upon him. Yeah, uh, exactly. And his wild claims have boomeranged. So I don't think his committee has been particularly effective. And, in fact, Republicans were talking earlier about removing him as the head of the committee because they're so disappointed with its lackluster results. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, he's in that category with Clay Higgins, the moron from Louisiana who talked about ghost buses to to the head of the FBI and blamed F, ghost buses full of FBI provocateurs for January the 6th. And then you've got Tommy Tuberville and Comer is definitely in that category, which is surprising. I wish they could do IQ tests of the Congress, and I think the American public would be alarmed that uh, the kind of quality of the, a lot of the people that are particularly on the Republican side. But um, what about the, uh, I mean, the Biden White House kept on the Republican uh, U.S. attorney for Delaware who was investigating Hunter Biden. They did that like being good guys. And of course, they got rewarded by the fact that the the case that was finally brought against Hunter Biden was essentially a diversion where he got a slap on the wrist because there was no there was no there there. But then the Republicans went crazy over that and now they've forced a new uh, trial and of course the judge also uh, t- uh, turned it down. So where does that wh- where does that one stand in terms of a, a, a real legal case against uh, Hunter Biden as opposed to this kangaroo court in the house? Well, it depends on how far the judge wants to go. I mean, Hunter Biden was probably made a mistake to turn down the agreement, though the the judge scotched it as well. 
I think there he's in somewhat murky waters. On the other hand, for the Republicans, it's a tough sell since it revolves around gun ownership, something that they've said every red-blooded American should be entitled to own his own gun. And Hunter Biden's violations were fairly picayune. So smoking a joint and owning a gun is a no-no, right? Right. Um, But the Supreme Court's about to hear it. That that also has nothing to do with Joe Biden. So it's not particularly uh, useful for them as a political cudgel. But the Supreme Court's about to hear a case where this unbelievable criminal who was shooting up police cars and all over um, uh, Texas, his case is before the Supreme Court where the right-wing justices are probably going to rule in the favor of this spousal abuser and serial gunslinger who is being, was prevented from owning, who had his firearms taken away because of a restraining order from his girlfriend who was terrorized by him. And they're likely to rule in favor of, of spousal abuse, meaning that anybody who wants to beat up or murder their wife should be entitled to have a firearm. I guess that's a, 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 a digression, but it just shows you how, th- how, how much on shaky ground is their case against Hunter Biden. Well, they're grasping at straws to try and uh, indict and convict him, if, if anything possible. Partly, well, largely, not partly, because they want to relativize Trump's misdeeds. They want to paint everyone with the same brush or even argue that Trump is an innocent, while the Bidens are, in fact, the true malefactors. So at the end of the day, it's it's all about protecting Trump, right? And this is what the House of Representatives under Republican control has devolved into, the Trump legal protection arm, uh, including, of course, the new House Speaker, who uh, tried to... uh, help Trump's stop the steal uh, lie, uh, which has now become a core belief amongst Republicans. And he just visited Trump at Mar-a-Lago on bended knee. To a large extent, the House Republicans take their marching orders from Trump himself. And that is one of the reasons why you have such chaos in the House. Uh, The Ukraine funding bill has been stymied because of Trump. Because of because of Putin, Jacob. Putin gives Trump orders. Trump is his loyal retainer. Well, well that's, you don't have to get, answer uh, that. But. The, the sources of Trump's peculiar, peculiar views on Russia, he clearly has some kind of a fealty to, to Putin and wants to hand over Ukraine to Russia as part of its legitimate sphere of influence. All of this, actually, the whole Hunter Biden saga goes back to Ukraine because it's an attempt to whitewash Trump's own misdeeds in Ukraine, which resulted in his impeachment trial, his first impeachment. Exactly. Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Jacob, and we'll stay in touch on this story to see what happens um, now that Hunter Biden has called the House Republicans bluff. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Halbrun, who is the editor of The National Interest and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a columnist at The Spectator and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times, a senior editor at The New Republic, and he has an article at The National Interest, Hunter Biden's Revenge. He could become the hero that saved Joe Biden. And his new book available at Amazon is America Last, The Right Century-Long Romance with Foreign Dictators. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking to the poisoning of the wife of the head of Ukraine's military intelligence and the extent to which Russia has penetrated the leadership circle for assassination.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. And he has an article at the Kiev Post, Why Ukraine Can and Will Win, and another at The Hill, Jake Sullivan's new essay reveals a Biden administration in denial about Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anders Asland. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And we're just learning that the wife of the head of Ukraine's military intelligence, Mariana Budanova, has been poisoned by some heavy metal poisoning. Of course, uh, the Russians have a history of using poisons against political opponents, uh, Navalny, uh, Skripal in the UK, Yushchenko, opposition leader in Ukraine 2004, was poisoned uh, with dioxin. And of course, Alexander Litvinenko, a KGB former colleague of Putin's was murdered in London with uh, polonium. So we know that that's a tool used by Russian <clears throat> intelligence. But how did they get so close to Badanov? Because his wife works in Badanov's office. Well, works or works. Uh, she she lives in his office because uh, he thinks that it's necessary for their. Uh, security, but uh, of course there are uh, possible Russian agents all over in the Ukraine. You don't see a difference between the Russian and uh, Ukrainian, and uh, uh, there were lots of them under um, President Yanukovych until 2014, both the Minister of Defense and the head of the intelligence agency were then Russian citizens, Russian uh, generals uh, serving under Yanukovych. Uh, so it's very difficult to clean everybody out. Well, uh, recently, uh, Oleski uh, Danilov, the head of the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine, uh, said that in 2003, Putin set himself a task of destroying our country. And during all this time, their tasks have not changed. Considering the fact that the Russian Federation does not have the ability to win by military means, it is now using all its agents' networks, which unfortunately still exist, and now we are observing their maximum activation. So is that what's happening, that Putin's losing the war, so now he's deploying his hit teams within Ukraine itself to to assassinate the leadership? Probably. They count that uh, Kirill Bodan, uh, the head of the military intelligence, uh, uh, whom I actually saw in uh, uh, when I was in Kiev in September, that's a truly tough guy. Uh, he um, has been subject to about uh, 10 uh, attempts on his life. And President Zelensky has uh, been exposed to, to a number of attempts on his life uh, also. So this is the, the Russian way. And the Ukrainians are also now killing one of the collaborators in the occupied territories of the other of the, the top people. Well, Badanov, though, has really got under Putin's skin because he actually has been behind these drone attacks on Moscow itself, one of which would have hit Putin's quarters inside the Kremlin, but for the fact that it hit a flagpole. Yeah, but it was a small thing. It was more in order to show that they could do it and test uh, uh, how it was uh, possible. It was another drone that uh, hit uh, uh, Putin's uh, residence in Nova Agaryova, I think, uh, where he actually lives. I think that was uh, more uh, serious. No, as I said, uh, Budanov is a truly tough guy. Right. Well, what's your sense then of what's happening? You wrote the article that I mentioned in, in the, recently in the Kiev Post on November the 26th, Why Ukraine Can and Will Win. Of course, there's a lot of talk uh, that 
there's a stalemate. And needless to say, the head of Ukraine's military said that in an interview with Ukraine. It's like we're sort of in a World War I situation, which clearly irritated Zelensky. What's your assessment of what's happening on the ground in that war? Well, the big positive thing that has happened uh, in the last uh, months is that Ukraine has made big advances on uh, Crimea. Since late September, Ukraine has actually managed to restore commercial shipping over the Black Sea, uh, thanks uh, to having taken out uh, uh, much of the <clears throat> Russian uh, military installations on Crimea and uh, in the area outside of uh, Crimea. So uh, the Russian Black Sea Fleet has fled uh, from Sevastopol uh, to the easternmost part of uh, the Black Sea. And uh, the Russians have moved their Calibre uh, cruise missiles uh, that they kept uh, in storage from Sevastopol uh, to the main uh, port in Novorossiysk. So therefore, Ukraine can now uh, uh, pursue commercial shipping. More than 100 uh, ships uh, have uh, passed uh, from uh, Odessa uh, through the Bosphorus um, since uh, late uh, September. So this is a big uh, uh, achievement. But uh, what concerns uh, the front, the Russians have attacked a lot outside of the city of Donetsk, but they have not managed to get any breakthrough. And for the last month, this month of November, the Ukrainians have recorded about 900 killed Russian soldiers every day. So this is a massive meat grinder. There is some uh, uh, suspicion that these uh, numbers are ex exaggerated. The Ukrainians now claim that they have killed more than 320,000 Russian uh, soldiers. These are not civilians, but uh, soldiers. And uh, I see the U.S. Uh, highest numbers are up to 200,000 killed uh, Russians. This is a, an enormous killing, but the Russians continue to go on. And one reason is that the Russians recently officially announced that the number of uh, prisoners had declined from 420,000 to 260,000 which would indicate that they had thrown 160,000 prisoners into the war in Ukraine. Well, they lost, I think, about 15,000 in Afghanistan, and that was enough for them to pull out of Afghanistan. So I've heard some of the intercepts of young Russian soldiers calling their mothers and their girlfriends, just saying how hideous it is and how they're dying, they're Guys are dying all around them and absolutely furious at the the lack of leadership and at Putin saying, he, he, he why wasn't he satisfied with just getting Crimea? Why does he need Donetsk and Luhansk? Why, why are we here? There has to be a massive dif difference between the morale of the Russians, who don't know why they're fighting that war except for the mythical fascists and uh, Nazis they're supposed to be uh, liberating the country from, whereas the Ukrainians uh, know exactly why they're fighting, don't they? Indeed, this is the big uh, difference, that the Ukrainians have uh, strong morale, even if they are tired of the war. And now the Russians have no morale at all. Uh, and uh, the, the Ukrainians uh, seem to have a much better equipment. And uh, they have uh, commanders who care about their lives, unlike uh, the very hierarchical uh, Russian officers who are really pursuing a World War I uh, tactics. So this is a reason why the Ukrainians have not made frontal attacks, because uh, uh, they would lose far too many uh, soldiers then. And uh, most of the Ukrainian uh, soldiers uh, are still volunteers. So what then do you make of uh, of the recent article to the, by Charlie Kupchin and others suggesting it's time for negotiations. Yeah, I, I simply can't understand it uh, uh, because uh, 
uh, any negotiation, any <clears throat> agreement with Russia could not be trusted. Putin has violated every agreement that he has made uh, or that his predecessors uh, uh, have uh, made. Whatever he says, he just lies. Uh, you know the saying, don't believe anything until the Kremlin has uh, denied it. And uh, if, if the purpose of uh, any negotiations from Russia's side would be just uh, to get a rest so that they can mobilize more resources and tie the Ukrainians out. Ukraine is not quite defensible unless it takes Crimea back because Ukraine needs Crimea and Sevastopol in order to save commercial shipping over the Black Sea, which is vital for the Ukrainian economy. 95% of all Ukrainian exports in physical terms went through ships through the Black Sea previously, and that should be uh, re-established. Uh, so I re really don't think that the House and Kapchan know what we are talking about. Charlie Kapchan, uh, well, I, of course, I know these people. Uh, Charlie Kapchan uh, boasted that he had stopped the World War Three uh, uh, when he was senior director for Europe under uh, Obama in the National Security Council and that he had stopped uh, Toria Newland, who's now under Secretary of State for Policy, from delivering uh, arms uh, to, to Ukraine. So he was on the wrong side then, and he's on the wrong side now. But you argue in your article at the Kiev Post uh, that why Ukraine can, can and will win, that the only way Russia is going to win is through Donald Trump. And because Putin owns Donald Trump, and Donald Trump, if he gets elected, the first thing he'll do is cut off aid to Ukraine and possibly pull the U.S. out of NATO. So explain further why you think Donald Trump is the only person that could win the war for Russia. Well, uh, I think that... Uh it's completely clear that uh, Donald Trump is all in favor of Putin. He has never criticized uh, Putin. He has criticized uh, Ukraine over and over again. He loves uh, Putin and uh, a dictatorship. We should believe him on uh, on this. Uh, he has not explained why, really. Uh, but uh, given all the stories that uh, uh, we have about uh, Trump, I be, uh, believe particularly in the book by Craig Unger about uh, the house of uh, Putin, the house of Trump, that uh, uh, Trump has been um, compromised uh, in Russia uh, repeatedly through his uh, plausible sexual acts when he has been there. We also know that uh, uh, his business model was to sell uh, expensive condos without asking any questions, particularly to wealthy uh, Russians, both in Miami and in uh, in uh, New York. Uh, and uh, we know this, we know people who have bought it, it's well uh, documented, and these are very odious characters that he sold the uh, apartment uh, to. So uh, we should think that uh, they are both uh, sexual compromise uh, against uh, Trump and uh, that he has a strong financial connections uh, w with the Russians. Uh, uh, we pretty much know this. Well, interestingly enough, and as I know, we are venturing into amateur psychiatrics at a recent rally, Trump suddenly out of the blue started to talk about the Steele dossier about the so-called PP tapes, and he went on to talking about how you know he would never do something like that, and they talked about the golden showers and and how Melania has said, oh you know you're a germaphobe, you'd never do that. It was so off the wall that you had to think, my God, this guy is is speaking out loud about the very thing that he claims he's not guilty of. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, such a, a steady thing. I knew such uh, stories from when I worked as a diplomat in Moscow that uh, they uh, did take photos of ordinary diplomats uh, who got into compromising uh, situations with uh, uh, Russian uh, ladies. And uh, this is a standard procedure. And if that ha happens to mid-level diplomats, uh, you take will take for granted that uh, U.S. billionaires st staying at the um, president's suite in Ritz-Carlton is uh, filmed back and forth, and uh, you would not expect uh, Trump not to do anything that would be uh, considered improper uh, when he is there for Miss Universe. And you probably remember also the famous U.S. op-ed columnist who went to Moscow in 1959 and he turned out to be gay, which was not very good at that time. And the KDB produced the relevant photos of him in some kind of honey trap in Moscow. Which, which cost him a lot in uh, uh, those days. This is an old standard procedure, and the te technology now makes it extremely easy. So I would be extremely surprised if uh, such things do not exist. So just back to the Ukraine and the, the poisoning, just here in the last couple of minutes, the, the poisoning of the wife of the head of Ukraine's uh, military intelligence, who's, who's been the most effective in attacking uh, Russia, deep into Russia, going after the leadership, Putin having drones go to the Kremlin and to Putin's compound outside of Moscow, along with drones that struck the heads of, of the GRU and the FSB, the Russian intelligence services in Moscow itself in some high rises as well. And Badanov himself has, has had at least 10 its attempts on him. So, just in closing, how are the, how are we going to how are they going to keep particularly Zelensky safe if Putin's now taking the gloves off and out to assassinate Ukraine's leaders? Well, uh, as I understand it, uh, uh, Zelensky is living in the presidential administration, and the presidential administration is the old. Um, party headquarters in Kiev. There are huge basements underneath with corridors and all kinds of facilities. So this is where he and his closest collaborators are living and working. So you do not enter the presidential administration in Kiev easily. That is how he protects his life. Right. But there are uh, Russian agents throughout the country, so it's a dangerous situation. And I thank you for joining us, Anders Aslan. Thank you very much, Ian, as always. And again, I may speak with Anders Aslan, who's a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum and a professor at the Centre for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and serves as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. And he has an article at the Kiev Post why Ukraine Cannon Will Win, and another at The Hill. Jake Sullivan's new essay reveals a Biden administration in denial about Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305